Then there's the pride. And then once that, you look at the pride kind of worked out, if that ever actually gets worked out. You know, and then all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm really covetous. Man, I'm really judgmental. Man, I'm a Pharisee. See, the beauty of walking with Jesus is that the Spirit of God keeps peeling back that onion for us. And we get to a point where we say, Lord, I just need you. Lord, who am I to, you know, you don't have to go and say, hey, listen, take that plank out of your eye because the Holy Spirit's showing you that you got a lumber yard in your own eye. Before the flood, people had gone their own way. With hearts so far from God, there was nothing left except judgment. That's where pride takes us. And that's why, as we'll hear in today's message, the best place for any believer is in the dust at the foot of the cross. We are all dependent on the grace of God all the time. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 1, with our continuing study entitled, Prelude to the Flood. When was the last time you woke up in the morning and you said, Lord, I don't have a clue what's going to happen right now, but whatever it is, I'm going to walk with you. When was the last time you got to the end of your day and you said, you know what? Well, whatever, Lord. That's what you had for today. It seems simple even to talk that way, but that's the way we should live our lives. I don't know what happened in your life today, but what I do know is that God's with you, whatever's going on today. When was the last time, no matter what your day looked like, you said, Lord, just bear the fruit you want to bear in my life? I don't know why this happened. I don't know why the car broke down. I don't know why I got laid off, God. I don't know why. But you know what? You know why. Bear the fruit in my life. I trust you. I believe in you. That's what walking with God's all about. It doesn't mean it's all easy. It doesn't mean it all rolls smoothly. I love this. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. Now, by all accounts, it doesn't say how God took him or why God took him or in what way God took him, but most people would say that this is an example of some sort of a translation or a rapture. We don't use that word here because it's not in this, but the idea is that we know that God did that with, of course, the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, where the chariot of fire came and separated Elijah from his, uh, I like to call him his Padawan, for those of you who are of the Star Wars fame, Elisha, his young disciple, and the chariot of fire came, and Elijah was just out of here. We do have a hope that God will do this for his church before the great tribulation period. The fact that God will take his church before that judgment begins. Now, people, I don't want to get off on eschatology. It's not the time or the place for that. But what I, I, people always ask me, like, you know, so what do you think about all that stuff? I'm like, look, the best way I can counsel you as a pastor is prepare to go through the tribulation and pray that you won't. I say that simply because of this. We don't want to be escapist. We want a hearty faith. We want a faith that says, whatever's going to happen next, Lord, I'm trusting in you. And that's why I say, prepare 
for it to be post-tribulation. Pre- prepare, have a hearty faith that says, no matter what comes, I'm with Jesus, and no matter what. So prepare that it's going to be as hard as it's going to be, but pray that it will be a pre-tribulation rapture. And I believe that it will be. But I don't want to let my desire to escape this world keep me from having a robust faith to be God's man in this world. And that's an important word because there's all sorts of Christians who their hope in getting out of here has kept them from really engaging in the work that God has them here for. And whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, if you're still here, God's got a job for you. People always ask me, they say, oh, Pastor Daniel, are you going to do a prophecy update? And I always have the same one. It's simply this. Jesus ain't back yet, so we got work to do. (laughs) That's my favorite prophecy update right there. You can take that one to the bank. Jesus hasn't come back yet, so we got work to do. We'll keep worshiping him, serving the world in Jesus' name. And I'll say that every single day until he comes back. And then when he comes back, I'll say, guess what? Jesus is back. I'm home. Amen. Right? Amen. You could, you could clap. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Enoch walked with the Lord and was not, for God took him. But then it continues in verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years. He begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years, had a son, and he called his name Noah. Now, I'm going to stop there, because I want to make a point about this, and I, and I skipped over this on purpose. Now, if you were to take every single one of these names of these 10 generations, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, if you were to take all those names, and you would go to a, a Hebrew dictionary, and you were to translate their names, what they actually mean, you find this, Adam, you know what, I'll just do it this way, rather because you're all going to try and scribble this down. I'll post this on Facebook later, so you can just listen, okay? If you take each name in order and you translate it, this is what the sentence comes out to. If you just take the 10 names, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, you take their translations and it comes out to this. Man, if you can insert an is in there, or man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. <laughs> right? Because Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Canaan means sorrow. Mahalel either means the blessed God or the praise of God. Jared means shall come down, Enoch means teaching, Mahalel means his death shall bring. Lamech means despairing, and Noah means comfort or rest. I'll read that again. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The praise of God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring despairing comfort. <laughs> That's a pretty mighty list of names now, isn't it? That's powerful. That's powerful. Write in a list of names, translated out, you get the gospel. Man is appointed mortal death and sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. That's the gospel right there. Right in a list of names. You'd, you'd never notice it unless you noticed it. And you say, God, thank you for that list of names. Hallelujah. 
right there. Now, Lamech here, it says, he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work in the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now, so we get this guy Noah, and we're, it stops here because the reality is, of course, is that Noah's the next major character who we're going to see. Lamech names him Comfort because he's going to comfort them concerning their work and their toil of their hands. This has something to do with the curse that had just been levied on the people. Now, in verse 30, it says this, After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we had Lamech dies, and now we end with Noah and his three sons, where these four guys, Noah and his three sons, are going to be the characters of the next section of the book of Genesis. Now, I want to go a little bit into Genesis chapter 6 because this is really where we start seeing the, the setup for the flood. And this gets very confusing. I'm going to try and do my best pretty quickly to go through this with you. But it says this, in Genesis 6 verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and the birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, there has been libraries written on what is going on in the first two verses here of Genesis chapter 6. We realize that there's a multiplication of people on the earth, and you can imagine people living to be 900 years old and having sons and daughters, that that would make sense. Their sons and daughters would have sons and daughters, and then boom, there's people everywhere. But then in verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, this whole thing is very complicated, and the reality is, is that there are some people who want to say that the sons of God are some sort of fallen angels or angels who have now decided to marry uh, human women. There's a whole school of thought that holds to that. A whole other school say the sons of God, of course, were the descendants of the godly line, and the daughters of men were the descendants of the ungodly lines, and a lot of different things in between. And you guys know how I'm going to answer this. I don't know what the answer to this is. It's a strange thing to say the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and took them as, lo as wives for themselves of all whom they chose. It's a weird thing to say because that's what people were doing. Men were seeing women. They were thinking that they were beautiful and they were getting married and they were having kids. 
I mean, that was one of the first commandments, be fruitful and multiply. And so they were doing it. So the fact that it comes up, the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now, we know that that phrase, the sons of God, show up in Job chapter 1, where it says, now there was a day when sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So there was a, a strong tradition that this was the sons of God. The idea was the angelic realm. Uh, even in the, the Greek translation, what they, we call the Septuagint of the Old Testament, they translated the sons of God as angels. So for the people who did this translation, they saw this as some sort of a mixing of the angelic realm with the human realm. But again, I don't want to press the text. You guys have heard me say this before. When the text is silent, we need to be also. We have to be careful not to press things into the text. So, but it is unique that they would bring this up, right? And then in verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, what this means here is that God's judgment is being declared. His judgment is being declared. This idea, my spirit will not strive with man forever, that word strive, it also means to put the sword back into its holder or its sheath, and which was kind of interesting because I was thinking about this and we know we have the bow of the knee dress rehearsal and folks are out there with Roman gear on with swords and I'm like, oh yeah, when you put your sword away, you're not striving anymore. It's the same word picture there. So the idea here is that God is ready to judge, but yet in his mercy he says, yet his days shall be 120 years. So from this point, 120 years, and then God's judgment is going to happen. Now, in verse 4, again, we get more things. It says this, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So you come back to this. You have this idea that there's these giants in the, in the Hebrew. It's the Nephilim, which means the mighty ones or the fallen ones. So a lot of people hold very strongly that this is fallen angels who you can read about in um, Jude and some other places. Some people would say that these are who they are. The reality here is that there are giants in the land. There are these Nephilim who were there. And then when the sons of God and the daughters of men began having children. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, what does that mean? We don't know. What, what does it mean, the mighty men of old, men of renown? Famous ones? See, that's why people struggle with this. And I, I have a lot of, there's a lot of scholars who I respect, pe very smart people who, I mean, literally, you can read volumes on this. And what I always come back to is we just don't know. We just know that something is happening here that God is trying to, to put into our hearts. But for me, it ha really has nothing to do with the offspring. It has to do with the fact that God is struggling maintaining humanity. Not because he can't maintain it, because of what humanity has become. Look at what happens. Verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. Wow. In the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So you think about this. 
God created Adam and Eve in the garden. They chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're banished from the garden. Then their children, Cain and Abel, they kill each other. By the time you get to you know, uh, Cain's offspring, Lamech, he's killed somebody. And now we get to this point where something is going on and, and the human heart is just evil. Every motivation of the human heart is evil. This is the warping of the image of God in full bloom. And that's why it says in places like Jeremiah, where it says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It says, I, the Lord of hosts, search the heart. I know the mind. See, this is the reality. This is why people who walk with God for the longest are the most humble. This is why. Because if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you will realize how the motivations and the intentions of your heart, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, are just wicked. Wicked. And the people who've been walking the closest with God the longest are the people who trust in his grace more than anybody. Because they're under no disillusionment or illusions that they have become righteous in themselves. It's like, I mean, let's be honest. If you really do and let the Holy Spirit do the hard work of sanctification in you, isn't it like peeling back an onion? It's like, yeah, you know, I used to cuss a whole lot. Now I don't do that anymore. But now I just, I don't say it, but I think it. And then you start working on that. And then once the heart cussing goes away, then there's the pride. And then once that, you get the pride kind of worked out, if that ever actually gets worked out. You know, and then all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm really covetous. Man, I'm really judgmental. Man, I'm a Pharisee. See, the beauty of walking with Jesus is that the Spirit of God keeps peeling back that onion for us. And we get to a point where we say, Lord, I just need you. Lord, who am I to, you know, you don't have to go and say, hey, listen, take that plank out of your eye because the Holy Spirit's showing you that you got a lumber yard in your own eye. So you want to go deal with someone's speck and you're like, look, I am a lumber factory. These eyes, you know, I'm nobody. I just want, I love you enough just to talk to you about this, but I'm nobody. See, what happens with, in the church oftentimes is that we realize that we've been forgiven. But we never let the Spirit do the heart work until we become puffed up, proud. We're looking down our noses at everybody. We're saying, oh, so-and-so, so unrighteous. When really, the Spirit of God is saying, so are you, but God still loves you. See, what is the most amazing about who God is is that God sees our hearts totally naked, all that's in there, not only the actions and the thoughts, but the motivations and the intentions. And he sees how wicked it all is, and yet he still loves us. And that is why the fruit of the Spirit is love. Because if God can love us with all of the garbage that's in our hearts, how can we not love other people? How can we look down and judge people who, who aren't getting it done when our whole lives are radically dependent on the grace of God? Each one of us, we come and we say, Lord, I need you. I mean, do we realize that we need the gospel as much today as on the day that we first gave our lives to Jesus? We need God's grace as much right now as on the day that we got saved. It's not like, well, I needed his grace in the beginning, and now I got it done on my own. No, every day we say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. Lord, I'm kind of nasty. 
And nobody knows the half of it. Now, I had someone just recently say, oh, Pastor Daniel, you know, you know, your walk with Jesus just must be amazing. I mean, you know, you're such a holy guy. And I'm like, man, I just need Jesus. I'm like, listen, yeah, maybe, maybe except for my dreadlocks, I don't do a lot of things I shouldn't do. <laughs> but the reality is, is that, you know, the Holy Spirit shines a light on my heart. And I'm just like, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. We never leave that spot. You know, the best place, the prime real estate is the dust at the foot of the cross. That's, the, that's our prime real estate as Christians. Every day we just show up. Hey, Amen. you can clap. Yeah. I'll meet you guys there, you know. It's just like at the foot of the cross saying, Lord, every intention of my heart is wicked. I do good things for the wrong reasons. I do bad things and I know it. Lord, everybody thinks I'm doing such a great job, but Lord, I'm just messy on the inside. And you love me still. And if ever we forget that, we need to ask God for the grace, for the eyes of faith, to simply look at the cross. Because right there, we see why Jesus died. The Jews didn't kill him. The Romans didn't kill him. We killed him. Because God knew that we were wicked. And he says this here. The Lord said, I'm going to destroy man, verse 7, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and the bird of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then verse 8, one three-letter word shatters all this dreariness, but. I love that word in the Bible. My favorite biblical word is the word but. You guys are giggling because you have dirty minds. Uh-huh. <laughs> All this judgment, but Noah found grace in the eye. First usage of the word grace is right there. God is going to judge and condemn the world, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And my prayer for us as a church is that Crossroads will always be known as a church that has found grace that we realize that we are never, ever saved by our works. We're never saved by how much our life has been cleaned up. We're never saved by what we do or how good we do. But we come and we say we are simply people who receive the grace that God offers for us in Jesus. And all of our value as humans we get from this simple grace. People always say, what's the best definition of grace? Here it is, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the best definition of grace. I know most people say unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. No, I don't like that because it doesn't mention Jesus. How can you talk about grace without Jesus? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. All that God wants to be and is for humanity at the expense of Jesus. Jesus got the cross so we can get God and all that God is for us. That's grace. And I don't know about you guys, but when I hear about that grace, I just want to praise the Lord. Jesus is real. Leading up to the flood, sin was rampant. There were giants in the land and we heard about the sons of God who took wives from human women. 
There are a lot of unanswered questions about this, and as Pastor Daniel reminded us, when the text is silent, we should be also. When he said his spirit wouldn't strive with man forever, God was declaring his judgment. God is doing some amazing things here at Crossroads Community Church, and I'm so thankful for what God is doing right here on Jesus is Real Radio. It's my prayer that each day when you join us, that Jesus truly is becoming more real in your life. I want to invite you to join us at Crossroads Community Church this Sunday live. We stream all of our services live on the internet. Sundays 9 and 11.15 Pacific Standard Time or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. as well as Encore services. All of our services are there for people who can't make it to be with us live at church. So please join us at Jesus is Real Radio. Yes, we encourage you to join us for one of our worship services at Crossroads Community Church. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow the links to the live stream. Next time on Jesus Is Real Radio, we'll come to the event of the Great Flood. As Pastor Daniel will tell us, the world we live in now is corrupt, just as in Noah's time. You've been listening to Jesus Is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series entitled Origins next time. Until then, may God bless. Jesus is real.